payback. And when we get wronged, that's what we do. Yet Jesus comes in a reverse fashion. He comes to save those who have wronged him. He teaches his followers to love their enemies. He teaches his followers to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. And that's a surprise. So when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, it was a massive surprise. And I bet when you first experienced Jesus, it was surprising too. Because Jesus unexpectedly arrives and he announces that he's coming into your life. Has that happened for you? Maybe you thought once upon a time you were going on a youth trip because there was a cute boy there, but you got Jesus instead. Happened for anybody? You thought you were going to college to get a degree to prepare you for a career, but you got Jesus instead. You thought you were destined to a miserable life when you got arrested, but you met Jesus as a result. You thought you were going to rehab to get sober, but you got Jesus You got cancer and thought you were going to die. Instead, you got Jesus. So who knows? But Jesus always comes as a surprise. And this was certainly true for Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph had not been preparing to be the parents of the Messiah. They weren't especially cut out for this role either. But each of them woke up one day and angels showed up to them separately to announce that Jesus was going to be coming into their fledgling little family. And we're given Mary's perspective of that in Luke's gospel, but we're going to be looking at Joseph's perspective in Matthew here this morning. We'll start by reading chapter 1, verse 18, and we'll read through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. I want to look at this uh, in three waves this morning. The first wave is verses 18 to 21. That wave is the one of disruption. And then 22 and 23 is the wave of submission. And verses 24 to 25 is transformation. So I couldn't get it all the same letter. We're going disruption, submission, transformation. So let's start with disruption, verse 18. You get the sense in those first few verses of what exactly is going on with Joseph. You see that in verse 19, that he has found a woman to whom he's betrothed, this Mary, and, his, and she is pregnant. And being betrothed was the second step of three steps in the marriage process for first century Jews. The first step was being arranged by your parents. You're arranged to be married as children. And the second step would happen when you're a teenager, and it was betrothal. It would last about a year. And during that one year, uh, you you would live apart. You would not sleep together. And you were waiting to get married. 
And finally, that third step would be marriage itself. But the second step, betrothal, is what's happening here in Matthew chapter 1. And it was really serious, way more serious than we take engagement. And this period, this period was so serious that the penalty for sleeping with a person who was betrothed to be married was stoning for both parties. Big deal. And it was during this second step that Mary was found to be pregnant. So can you imagine Joseph's response? He knows he's not slept with her, but she's pregnant. And she tries to assure Joseph that she's not been with anyone else and that, that it was God who made her pregnant. Now, I'm sure that excuse has been given before. And I don't think Joseph or anyone else has ever bought it. And it had to be crushing for Joseph because he loved Mary. He loved his bride-to-be. So Joseph now has this personal dilemma. On the one hand, he's called a just man in verse 19, which means that he must divorce Mary according to the Mosaic law because she has apparently committed adultery. And for righteous Jews like Joseph, divorce was not optional. It was mandatory because adultery produced a state of impurity that dissolved the marriage. So on one hand, he had to be righteous and just and had to get a divorce. But on the other hand, he wanted to demonstrate some compassion towards Mary. So he makes plans to break off with her privately. He didn't want to expose her to this disgrace. He was going to do it privately, meaning just with two or three witnesses instead of in front of the whole town, which is what usually happened. See, Joseph seems like the perfect mix, doesn't he? He wants to be obedient, but he wants to be nice about it. But the problem is that Joseph is exactly wrong. Sure, he wanted to do the right thing and the compassionate thing, but he did not understand the significance of the coming of Jesus into the world. And therefore, God sends an angel to him to disrupt his whole paradigm. See, Jesus is particularly disruptive to people like Joseph, righteous people, good people, well-intentioned people. I mean, look at verse 21. Verse 21, the angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, the angel didn't say, uh, you will bear a son, you will call him Jesus, and he will instruct you when you face life circumstances that are really complex. Didn't say that. The angel says he will save you. See, there's this parable of two men sitting on a bench. One man says he believes all religions are valid, and he illustrates it by saying that God is on top of the mountain. And that all religions represent different paths to get to God. So sure, there are different paths, but it's all the same goal. Well, the other man on the bench is a Christian. And the Christian says, that's not how Christianity works. Christianity is not about people ascending the mountain to get to God. It's about God sending his beloved son down the mountain to be with us. And that's what the angel's saying here. The Savior has come down the mountain. See, brother and sister, Christmas is about a Savior coming. Jesus came not as an example for us of the best way to be a human. He came to be a substitution for us. He took our place by dying on a Roman cross in order to save us. And that news is particularly disrupting for good people, to moral people. It's particularly important for Christmas for most of us here, the church has a way of attracting good, moral, well-intentioned people. 
But good, moral, well-intentioned people need a savior. The problem is that good, moral, well-intentioned people usually don't need it, don't know it, so we need a disruption. And your disruption probably won't be like it was for Joseph. It probably won't be an angel showing up in a dream to you. It'll likely be about a suffering. It'll be about a suffering that wakes you up to the brokenness in your own soul and the brokenness out in the world. It might be about a suffering that's a rebellious child. It might be fertility problems. It might be a job loss. It might be financial problems. It could be any number of things. And we would be wise to view the bout of suffering for what it is. It's God's painful grace that he has sent to disrupt you from depending on yourself so that you might trust in a savior. As you keep going in this story, the story goes on to depict how Jesus not only interrupted Joseph, he must have been in distress, you know? But then we see the next move, the next wave is how Joseph submits and returned to Jesus. You see it in verses 22 and 23. Did you notice that when we were reading, did you notice that how Jesus was named? See, usually fathers got to name their sons, not this time. Joseph is told by the angel what to name his son. In fact, Joseph is given two names to give his son. The first one's Jesus, which means he will save his people from their sins. And the second one is Emmanuel, which means God with us. So you see, right from the very beginning, Joseph has to submit to God from day one after his disruption when he didn't get to name his very own child. And see, when Jesus comes into your life, he names you. You don't get to name him. You don't get to tell Jesus how things are going to be. You don't get to list out the house rules. He tells you who you're going to be. And boy, does this challenge the main operating principle of our hearts. The main operating principle of our hearts is that we want to control our own lives, don't we? Amir Christianity, a book by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis gives this illustration of what happens when Jesus comes into your life by saying that your life is like a house. You think that when Jesus comes into your life, he's going to fix what obviously isn't working. It's kind of like you've got some roof leaks. You've got some drains that aren't working properly. And Jesus comes in and he fixes those. But then he goes about making your life far more difficult. And he starts knocking out walls. He starts building a wing on the side of your house. He decides to add a floor on your house. He decides to run up a tower into your house. He decides to carve out a courtyard in the middle of of your house. And this is not what you had in mind. (laughs) You thought you were going to be made into this cozy cottage, but he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. And I think this is the way Joseph viewed his life. He wanted this nice, predictable Jewish life, but God had much bigger plans for him. And brother and sister, the same is true for you and the same is true for me. You expect Jesus to help you in some obvious ways, like giving you a satisfying career, making sure you have a nice family, and making sure you don't go without. But what happens when Jesus moves in, he says, you might have your own drawings of how you want me to rebuild your house, but I have my own and that's what I'm going with. I think this is the crux of Christian contentment. Whose plans are you working with? Yours or 
his. Now, if you're working with his, you begin to see life surprises as a part of his plan as opposed to these unwelcome parts to your plan. You begin to see other people's intrusion into your lives as God's ordained people that he's given you to intersect with. And this shift, this shift is called submission. And it's the next step of the king, King Jesus coming in to your life. So once you've been disrupted, once you've submitted to the king's authority, then what? What can you expect? Well, you can expect the king to transform your life. See, in the first part of our passage, you look at Joseph. And Joseph is operating with a worldview that's fairly closed. His way of seeing the world involved obeying God and doing right by their people. For him, he's just shooting to be this good moral person. But he somehow, over time, had forgotten that he was involved with a promise-keeping God who acted in history. He forgot that God was about being involved with good and moral people. He forgot there was this sweeping narrative that he was a part of where God had promised to the prophets of old that a savior would be born of a virgin. He forgot that God had promised that the savior would come through David's line. But then Joseph woke up. He woke up after being rattled by this angel and now he's a new man. He now sees the world in 3D instead of 2D. He's ready to endure the hate and the misunderstanding that's going to come by taking Mary to be his wife. He doesn't care that his reputation of being a righteous man is going to go by the wayside because he's been transformed. He's been transformed from someone who's merely being someone who's a good person, a moral person, to someone who's ready to embrace both sides of obedience. You see it in verses 24 and 25. Verses 24 and 25 says, that he did just as the angel had told him, and he, married, and he married Mary as well as refrained from having sex with Mary during her pregnancy. That's one side of obedience. That's the external side. But all true obedience also has an internal side. What you see with Joseph is that his motivations have changed. His motivation for obedience is no longer about what people think. It's about doing what God wants to please God who's invited him to play this significant role in salvation history. So brother and sister, has that transformation happened for you? Have you become a new person, a transformed person, because you've awoken from your dreams of righteousness to see your need for an external righteousness that's been offered by a savior, Jesus Christ? Have you seen the futility of being in control of your life? Have you, have you noticed how you need more than just a change of behavior, but also a change of motivation? In short, has Jesus surprised you? See, Jesus, when he came the first time, it was a huge surprise. He came from the heights of heaven to the depths of shame. Surprise. He came from the wonders of glory to the wickedness of earth. Surprise. He comes from exaltation to humiliation, surprised. He goes from a throne to a tree, surprise. He goes from dignity to debasement, surprise. He comes from being worshipped to experiencing wrath, surprise. He goes from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, surprised. He goes from the coronation of a king to the curse of a criminal, 
surprise. He goes from the glory place to the gory place. Surprise. See, the fact that Jesus has come in this way is very surprising. But perhaps what's even more surprising is why he did this. He did it to have you. And I pray that this would disrupt you, this news would disrupt you in the best kind of way. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 432nd time, I don't know. But it would disrupt you so that you might submit to him afresh, this unlikely king, and that you might be transformed forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this news that <laughs> you have come. So surprising. And Lord, we, we live our lives with a very closed view of you coming and disrupting it. And disrupting it for the good. Lord, it might be painful and confusing for a time. But Lord, we know that you withhold no good thing from those you have chosen. And so Lord, I pray that this Christmas season, regardless of how we feel about ourselves, regardless of how topsy-turvy our lives seem, Lord, I pray uh, that we would submit to you and find a peace that helps us sleep tonight. We pray these things in your name. Amen.